On this week's episode of Empower, I'm joined by James Davidson and Marina Banks of the Houston area Urban League Young Professionals. We discuss police reform, the corporate response, the upcoming elections, and the coronavirus. Empower is a podcast presented by the Houston area Urban League that serves to inform young professionals about the Urban League, its programs, and the various civic and social topics pertinent to the community they serve. Welcome to Empower. I'm your host, Ray Shackleford. This is presented each and every week by the Houston Area Urban League. And this week, I'm joined again by two of our young professionals, Miss Marina Banks, who is a newly elected co-chair of the Civic Engagement Committee, and my brother James Davidson, who used to actually be one of our civic engagement chairs back in the day, not too long ago. <laughs> back uh, in the day, it's fine, it's accurate. <laughs> when I was also president here at the Houston chapter. And so uh, we're gonna kick off today with uh, both of you telling us how you came to be tied to the Urban League uh, for Marina, why you chose to step up and serve in leadership. And then with James, uh, the same, but why he served in leadership and it still stuck around. Uh, and so if you would both, enlighten us as to your, your Urban League journey. Okay. As stated, my name is Marina Banks. I'm newly elected Civic Engagement Co-Chair um, for Houston Area Urban League Young Professionals. I joined the Urban League back in 2017. I actually started out as an intern for the National Urban League Washington Bureau. Um, in the summer of 2017, I learned about young professionals uh, for the first time during that summer. I was given an assignment to look at different young professional organizations across the country at the different affiliates and see what different young professional groups were doing. And I learned that the Houston area young professionals were very engaged. And I was like, okay, well, as soon as I get back to Houston, you know, I want to get engaged. At that time, I had just moved to Houston. So I didn't know a lot of young professionals in the area. And I was looking for a great way to be more involved in my community. Okay. And why, uh, why have you now stepped up to be in leadership? So at the time I was in school, I really, really wanted to be in leadership. It was something that I had always drawn to just growing up, whether it was in high school, undergrad, law school, I've always been in leadership positions. Um, and so I, I like being able to motivate people to want to do more, right? Like we each have this calling. And so being able to help people understand what their calling is, understand the true beauty and essence and giving back and building up our communities um, is something that I really have a passion for. Okay, absolutely. We appreciate that. James, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, I, um, I joined the Urban League in kind of a weird way. So when I first moved back uh, to Houston after undergrad, I think it was 2010, um, I went to my first Urban League meeting uh, prior to that in college. I was involved with the uh, NAACP. And when I got to Houston, all I was seeing was the, the Urban League. And I, I, you know, I wasn't seeing the NAACP, no, no shade or anything. But <laughs> what I saw, uh, what was going on with our young professional group, you know, I wanted to, to go to a meeting. And what interested me in, in the group is I was meeting leaders from the moment I entered the door to the moment I left and didn't realize they were leaders. Um, I had uh, a great initial conversation with the future president who opened the door for me, who was on the, the leadership team at the time, uh, Samson Babalola. And then um, when I went to the meeting at the time, the current president was Elijah Williams. And without announcing you know, his title or anything, 
um, after the meeting, you know, we got, had a good conversation and he suggested to me that um, this is something that I should consider doing. And I was like, well, I know how things work with dues and all that good stuff. So um, I'm entering grad school. I really want to focus on that. And he said he understood and said, you know, just keep coming around. And that's what I did. And gosh, 10 years later, I, I, I never left, you know, and I, I think what, what keeps me around, you know, after um, a few terms as a civic engagement chair, uh, just, just being uh, in that, that network, that group of young professionals who want to see Houston become, you know, that leading example, not just for Texas, um, but, but for the nation. I, I think that that was really compelling and just seeing, you know, the, the next group of leaders who have came after me, um, Marina, especially as a civic engagement, civic engagement co-chair, uh, it's, it's really, it's beneficial to me. I mean, it, it lets me know that the people before me uh, did a great job. Um, I did something right. And uh, the leaders that come after me will leave that same legacy. So that's what kept me around. No, I, and I, James, I definitely echo that sentiment. I would like to think we did something right. Uh, and definitely those before us did something right as well, because here in Houston, we have been carrying that YP torch uh, for it'll be 21 years this summer. So uh, there is some longevity with that because we have grown uh, with the movement as a whole. And so one of the first things I want to touch on today with you guys was everything that's going on in the country around police. Uh, some of the protests have started to subside and we've seen more meaningful conversations shift to potential policy changes. We've even seen uh, in Minneapolis where they're dismantling the police department and going to build up some entirely different, you know, public safety structure. Uh, I've been getting articles like the one related to Camden, New Jersey. There was some study, I think in the early 2000s around New York's police department. So just a flood of information, trying to see what is the best way to move forward as a result of uh, the continual killing of black men at the hands of police officers. And even black women, in the case of Breonna Taylor, we still uh, have not seen any arrest in her case there in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, they did come out with Brianna's Law, which bans no-knock warrants. However, uh, all of the officers are still walking free. Uh, and so I would encourage people to definitely look into the case of Brianna Taylor, uh, reach out to the elected officials there to continue to apply pressure to make sure that she does receive justice, just like uh, the cases that are more talked about when you're talking about Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd, uh, who's actually from Houston and Third Ward. And so... The Urban League specifically has had a 10-point police reform plan where they look at things like body camera usage, uh, some type of accreditation system, uh, reforming away from the broken window model of policing, uh, and several other items. And then now they're actually pushing a piece of legislation called the Justice and Policing Act. And in that, it bans no-knock warrants specific to drug offenses, which is what ultimately got uh, Breonna Taylor killed. And from what I understand and have read, there are some exigent circumstances, extreme circumstances in which they will permit a no-knock warrant. Uh, but we have seen multiple cases where Black people are being killed as a result of them. Uh, but also the accreditation and database uh, is a part of that because looking at when these officers have complaints filed, 
nobody knows about them. So there's a lack of transparency is what we've seen in some instances they get fired, they go right down the street and start doing the exact same things all over again. And so what I want to get from you guys today is what are some of the things that you guys are hearing or seeing as potential solutions or just your personal opinions on those things? Uh, okay, so I'll start. Um, I guess one thing that I have been reading the most about um, and seeing some cities do it uh, focuses on the concept of accountability. And so when you go to report injustices in the police system or you report that you feel that a police officer is inappropriately using their powers, um, I believe in the city of Houston, it goes directly to the police department. What we've been seeing is that some cities are starting to initiate civilian oversight boards where they'll have a group of civilians who do not work for the police department to initially take those complaints and it goes to a board to determine if they should look further into the complaint. As right now in the majority of cities, when you make a complaint about the police station or about police officers, it goes directly to police officers. And so we talk about um, just some of the camaraderie between police officers are looking out for each other. And so a way to hold them accountable, I believe, is to look more into the civilian oversight board so that the complaints can go directly to civilians instead of going directly to police officers. So I'm glad you brought that up, Marina. And before we kick over to James, um, I did actually serve on the Independent Police Oversight Board previously and was a part of the uh, body camera audit committee as it presently stands, our, our civilian review board is not affected. Um, it's essentially a paper tiger, if you will. You have the ability to make recommendations. The case files initially go to internal affairs, which like you said, police um, overstand police. Uh, then we get the case files and it's done on a, a random rolling basis. So there's four panels. Uh, each panel each week is assigned cases. You review the case file. Uh, if there's any body camera footage, dashboard, security cameras, you have access to all of that. And then you convene with your other panel members and you make recommendations, whether it's punitive action, policy, training, et cetera. And it goes to a higher board, which is compiled, comprised of the panel chairs, uh, the mayor, the police chief, and the council person over public safety. And so one of the biggest issues is there's no subpoena power, uh, but also, like you said, there is not the appearance at a minimum of people being able to obtain justice and transparency. And so one of the things in that Justice and Policing Act is also uh, special prosecutors assigned to these cases because we do know that there is some level of camaraderie you're talking about law enforcement, the DA's office, et cetera. And so even if there is, you know, nothing going on, uh, it just gives it the appearance uh, as well as the actuality that they can receive justice when you're able to remove that from that body. Uh, and so that is one of the things I know is being considered is additional uh, tools and reformation of the police oversight board. Uh, Councilwoman Tiffany Thomas did say that was something they were looking at. Um, and I know that council member Edward Pollard, he was just able to get this passed in city council, I believe two weeks ago, um, where when you submit your reports um, about police misconduct to the police station, they'll now be posted online. So regardless of if action is taken by the oversight board, it'll now 
be transparent as to where any everyday people can go to this website to see what exactly the complaint is. I think the biggest issue is that it's going to the police department first. Even though it eventually will go to an oversight board, it's still going to them first and they're still responsible for vetting what goes to the oversight board. No, I, and that dashboard that you're referencing, he did speak about that. I know it's gonna be a few a few weeks, he said, before it's up and running, mm -hmm. uh, but they, they want input from the community now so they know what's included on the dashboard uh, to make sure that the community sees what he wants to see, uh, I guess, as much as possible in relation to that. James, you were about to say something? Uh, well, no, I, I was just just thinking that the, the biggest thing that I've seen um, right now when, when reading and, and hearing, you know, a lot of folks talking about defunding the police, I, I, I think what they're getting at is right now we we have over militarized our, our police um, force across the board. Um, and, and in most cities, when you look at their, um, their, their budget line, it, it could be a bit overbearing. And I, I, I think what we're starting to see um, is that they're starting to take a hard look at this budget and realizing that there are other wraparound services that could be, uh, that could be uh, better suited for the additional money that police are getting. Um, so, you know, what I have used that term you know, as a marketer myself, would defunding the police? No, I wouldn't have. But it has gotten a lot of people um, in, intrigued about that concept. I believe the city of Minneapolis um, has passed some sort of a city ordinance ar around that. So, so using uh, that money for mental health um, institutions is what I would like to see. So instead of having just a police officer uh, respond or arrive at the scene, you have a healthcare professional if it's deemed um, important. But when you all were having that conversation around the citizen review boards, and uh, Ray, I believe you had mentioned, it's very easy for a police officer to be fired and then go to another city and, um, and be hired again. And it, it got me thinking a possible solution while we're in the midst of COVID-19, I know we'll talk about that later. Um, you also hear a lot about contact tracing. And I think it would mean something if we were able to have a case file of some sort that could be on the dashboard you all spoke about that follows the police officers with them. And citizens have the opportunity to review their history, almost like a resume, as much as a police chief or whoever is doing the hiring reviews police officers' resume. If they have a laundry list of offenses, they should not be hired. And I think as it stands today in most areas, we're unable to see where, you know, what type of offenses they, they've had. Um, is there a, a pattern in their history of, um, you know, overuse of excessive force? Um, we don't have that now. So I, I would like to see, uh, you know, almost like a, a contact tracing for police officers. And I, I think those are great points. And even going back to something Marina said, one of the issues is everybody doesn't file formal complaints because some people are afraid to file complaints. And so whether that is women that get pulled over and are harassed by police and or I've seen a lot more people posting about bad experiences they've had with police where actually in one instance, they lied and said he had drugs on them. Uh, but the only reason he was able to get out of it is because he was in a position where he could pay for an attorney and fight it. And it took two years for him to get it removed. And how many young black or brown 
young men and women have been in those situations where they didn't have the resources to fight those things and then they get put on probation. There's a probation violation and now they're locked up for 20 or 30 years. Um, and so I think there needs to be a way to process complaints outside of calling the police to tell on the police because people are just not comfortable doing that. Uh, and to your other point, James, about crisis management, there needs to be an outlet where you can have mental health dispatched uh, instead of police and they can show up with non-lethal forms uh, to bring people down or, or whatever they need to do. Because even in the case, uh, I think his name was Rayshard Brooks, recently in Atlanta, I didn't watch the actual video where they shot him, but I did watch the before video. And it was very evident they could have handled that a different way to where that man should still be alive right now. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. They, the, the thing that would, because you mentioned that I, I did the same, I, I did eventually see the aftermath of the initial video of what people saw of him dying. But it, I think if someone like a healthcare professional or just someone who wasn't um, in that position of you know, being a police officer was there, it was incredibly easy to tell that one, he was compliant across the, across the board. Every question they asked for, he was compliant. It was also apparent to me as someone without police or healthcare training that they were fishing for a, a reason to arrest him. They asked him repeatedly, you know, have, have you been drinking? Would you be willing to take a breath of light? I mean, he offered solutions. How often do we see people inebriated or not offer a solution to, to make it home to their family? It, to me, it just seems like they wanted to get him off the street. And then, you know, based on his reaction, it, it, it turned violent. But that, that one upset me. I, I, didn't, I didn't see a cause for that at all. Yeah. Um, and so with, with that, I, I immediately thought about, you know, they could have taken him home um, because how many times have we seen or heard where those privileges have been afforded to uh, white people, people who are not black, people who are not Hispanic, and or I think it's an opportunity when you're talking about budget items, potentially having a partnership with an Uber or a Lyft to where you can either, you know, get in this Uber or this Lyft, or if you're just that adamant where you want to try and drive, then yeah, you might have to go sit in the drunk tank. But those options are not even presented at this point. Uh, and so I think that's why, at least here in the city of Houston, when you look at that budget item for the police department, it's like a billion dollars. Um, and people are asking, yeah, wow, that's a, a big, it's a big, uh, big number. And so people are asking, you know, what is all that money being spent on? They're not, and well, I'll take that back. Some people are actually saying, and I heard this on a panel I spoke on last week uh, about abolition as it relates to the police department. Um, and I don't even know what that would look like for us to potentially have to police ourselves. Um, but those are the types of extremes that people are throwing out there. And I haven't researched it enough to be, even be able to speak on that specifically. Uh, but that is, you know, how fed up I think the community as a whole is. Um, was there anything else that you guys wanted to touch on as it relates to police before we move to the, the next topic? Nope. No, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, I, I've got more. I have more. I just, I know, I know we're pressed for time. The one thing I will say on that, the, the last point, 
um, with abolishing the police force. I, I do not think that is reasonable nor feasible at all. Um, if, if somebody legitimately is trying to break into your house or rob your mother or grandmother or whomever, you're going to want to call the police. I think, I think the issue that we're experiencing and the, and the voices of outrage that we're hearing comes from a mistrust and a lack of relationship from our community with the, the police force. And until that um, is built up in a way where people can start trusting the police, you're gonna continue to hear those calls. And I, I think those of us in, in the black community who understand that and you know, provide solutions, uh, understanding that we gotta come to the table with something, it's not right. It, we didn't cause this issue, we're not out here killing ourselves in the manner that these police officers are killing us. Um, but it, it's going to take work um, to do it. And, and abolishing the police uh, department is not the way, in my humble opinion. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you said that, James. And, and like I said, I'm not there at this point because I'm still researching. I believe in like being informed before I make decisions. I, I will say this. I do feel like there are very specific things when you're talking about violent crime where police officers do need to be dispatched. And I think for me, that's where I'm at. The investment and the things that we're asking to do police officers often is outside of the scope of what we should be asking them to yes, do. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so uh, with that, the next thing I want to touch on is the corporate response uh, that has been taking place across the country. We have seen an outpouring of funding uh, we're talking about different corporate entities, specifically to the National Urban League. I know Verizon has given money. Uh, I believe the company Favor, uh, which is one of the HEB companies here in the state of Texas, uh, has given money. Uh, Chipotle, uh, Beyonce just did a partnership that was funding uh, businesses tied to the National Urban League. And so there have been several different initiatives across the board. And, you know, for me, it's just been interesting watching it because some have just chosen to issue statements. Uh, some have issued money specifically to historically black organizations and or committed to developing initiatives. And so I guess initially, what is uh, your respective thoughts on like this, this flood of activity? I don't know if you want to go. I've got some thoughts, but ladies first. Well, I know you said earlier you wanted to tackle this subject completely. Okay. Um, but I mean, I I view it as something that's positive. Honestly, I know that it came from something that's negative, but I think that um, any positive response is better than no response. Does it make up for any bad thing that's happened? No. Does it substitute for um, policies and staying the same in the way they are, not at all. But I still think that the positive reaction from them is still welcome. Yeah, and I, I, feel, I feel the same way. What's so interesting um, about this, I keep, in my mind, I keep hearing, like, why now? You know, we, we've had organizations in the past that have made, you know, surface level statements. We, we've had them donate money here and there, but on a much larger scale, we're seeing uh, an, outpouring, an outpouring of allyship. And I think even going to the other topic of police brutality, um, but, you know, focusing on, on the corporate uh, mission right now, 
allyship is the one of the things that we have missed and sorely needed in, in this struggle for justice. And, you know, my organization, they put out a, um, a, a fairly strong statement that took a lot of uh, my black colleagues and I just, it took us back. We, we were not prepared, you know, to, to receive that. And it was, it was a good thing. Um, the flip of that though, is I, my, and my concern with corporations just giving out, you know, these amounts of money is, is it genuine? Is it something that they fully understand that when you get involved in this, in this struggle, you have to do it for the long haul and you have to be committed through the ups and downs of, of justice specific to, to uh, the African-American community, but also our, our Latinx um, uh, folks and, and our LGBTQ plus folks. That is it. I, I want them to understand that this is a true commitment to the cause that you've just spoken up about. I don't know if every organization understands that, um, and, and yes, giving uh, dollars is good because none of this can be funded with, on hopes and dreams. Um, but I, I, I am concerned that uh, these companies are not thinking about the genuine commitment they have just made. That's, a, that's an interesting way to frame it. And I think for me, And I think you, you captured it well in terms of long-term commitment because I've kind of looked at the surge of energy from that vantage point overall. Um, you know, we've all been involved with community work for a while, and this is not something that's going to change overnight. It can change much quicker with uh, better and more authentic allyship, to your point, James. Um, but, you know, some of the organizations I'm tied to, they've, they've issued statements. I've had to help shape some of those statements to make sure that they were stronger than what they initially proposed and actually calling out, you know, the systemic racism and the fact that uh, a lot of this was tied to specifically George Floyd, a black man being killed by a police officer and just calling it exactly what it is uh, because that makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, well, some people uh, uncomfortable, but also when they're, you know, writing these quote unquote blank checks for some people, they are not being very clear about, you know, how these funds are going to roll out. Uh, and so I'm making sure that I'm watching that to see, okay, follow the money. What is, what is it? But also, you know, I, I hear, like you said, why now from a lot of people, but like you said, we need the money, we need the contributions. And what I'm starting to look at now is even with these commitments, where do they compare to the other philanthropic efforts? Like what amount of money are you committing to these black causes uh, that you should have already been committing, um, but also the, the longevity of it? You know, what is, I think I saw a 10 year commitment from I think Jordan and Jordan brand. Um, there've been some that, you know, span a certain amount of time, but I think that is ultimately gonna be, at least for me, part of the litmus test, but also looking at their leadership, I saw with, uh, was it Reddit? One of the actual founders stepped down from the board. He requested that they fill his seat with a person of color, a black person. Um, and they have already done that. And it's only been a few weeks. They filled it with a, a black tech founder. Uh, young brother is now on their board. 
So looking at your leadership, looking at your, your vendors, how many of your vendors are black? What percentage of the money that you spend? Um, there's a number of different things that are much more meaningful than these statements and gestures that I think a lot right. of people are getting caught up in. And so that's more so where, where I'm focused. Yeah, and, it, and that was kind of the second part of what I was thinking is like after the initial statement and part of the commitment that, that you've just made, it also is taking a, a look inward, you know, with, with your corporation, you know, how are you supporting your employee resource groups or your affinity groups specific to um, the black diaspora? Um, you know, my organization has a black employees resource group. Um, I, I know other organizations may have groups around, you know, our, our Caribbean brothers, but how are you supporting uh, the talent that you currently have? And then how are you recruiting and specifically where are you recruiting for the talent that you want to have? So for example, uh, for some of our larger corporations, are you investing in recruiting at HBCU events? Um, you know, I didn't go to an HBCU, but I, I am a proud proponent of supporting HBCUs from a corporate standpoint. Um, so pulling talent from there is important. Uh, what does your DNI, your diversity and inclusion uh, program look like? You know, uh, with to your point, Ray, of, of where you're putting your money, that's good, but also looking inward, like, do you have a DNI program? Do you celebrate your employees um, who are black on a yearly basis, not just in February? Um, that, that's, that's another component um, of the commitment that a lot of these companies have made, whether they realize it or not. And um, the last thing I'll mention, uh, sustainable, uh, a pipeline of sustainable leadership. Um, you and I, you know, were part of a leadership class that was founded on that basic premise that there needs to be a pipeline of leaders, young people who can take over the reins when our, our much wiser folks are, are, you know, are done with their careers. And that same thought process needs to be um, in our corporations from a black and people of color perspective. Um, you know, I applaud Reddit for what they, what they did. You know, I, I don't know Verizon, Target, our financial services groups, Fidelity, TIA, um, are, are they looking at their pipeline? And not just at the top, not just their CEOs, but your vice president of operations. Uh, your director of institutional uh, marketing, your, your business development person out in the field. Do you, can you look back and, and, look, and look at your roadmap and say this person who's at an entry level or mid-manager level has the potential to replace me 10, 15 years down the road, not just because they're black, but because they bring something valuable to the table. That is that true commitment that I would like to see beyond a donation in, in remembrance of George Floyd. No, absolutely. And probably the most surprising thing I've heard discussed, I don't know if it's gonna actually happen. Uh, one of the corporations I've had a conversation with because I've been getting a lot of these phone calls, they actually even spoke about potentially supporting a piece of legislation um, here in the state of Texas that would help to move the needle as it relates to the black community now. Like I said, it hadn't happened yet, but if something like that, because that is really the essence of allyship, using your power and influence to move things forward for Black people. Uh, and so if a company were to step up and do something like that, I'm 
I would just be floored. So I, hopefully that does come to fruition. Um, but I bring up that legislative element because another thing that I want us to touch on um, in this, you know, brief amount of time we have together is uh, the upcoming election, the current elections going on. And for you, James, specifically, the situation going on uh, in Kentucky, and I'll, I'll hand it over to you, and then we'll, we'll pull Marina back in here. Well, well sure. Um, and for those, when I said I moved back earlier uh, in this conversation uh, and found the Urban League in 2010, prior to that, I was at the University of Kentucky. So go Cats. I know we have a lot of uh, Big Blue Nation here in Houston. Um, but the one thing I'm, I'm seeing in, in Kentucky, and there's also um, a parallel here in, in Texas that I'll get into um, with uh, Charles, Charles Booker. Um, he uh, represents a district out in Louisville, and he's going uh, up against, I think her name is Amy McGrath, in the, um, in the Democratic primary. And, you know, the winner will uh, face Mitch McConnell in, in the uh, in the November election. But what, what I find um, so similar to our uh, runoff here in Texas with uh, Senator Royce West, um, you'll have to forgive me, I, I cannot remember uh, his uh, Democratic primary opponent, um, but I, I know she's, she's capable. But what I, what I find so interesting about those two elections is uh, these candidates are meeting the moment, in, in my humble opinion, in particular, Royce West and, uh, and Charles Booker, um, where they, they understand the impact of, um, of their candidacy, uh, given our pandemic uh, situation and given um, the fact that we have uh, so many uh, people who are paying attention to this and understanding that race, uh, issues of race, issues of uh, social inequality, economic justice, these things are going to be very important. And uh, my opinion is I, I think Charles Booker understands that moment. And uh, with what I've seen only via Twitter and some of my friends who are still in Louisville and Lexington, uh, they, they see that too. And, and uh, voting for them starts uh, tomorrow actually. Uh, or excuse me, election day for them is, is tomorrow. So they're already in the early vote process. Um, so I do think that, you know, we'll, we will see change there. And I'm hopeful um, that we will have that same type of impact when our uh, voting season begins. Uh, June 29th, I believe, is the uh, early voting uh, start. And then going on into um, the election uh, day for the runoff is uh, July 14th. So it's exciting times. All election, all politics are local, and there is no election cycle. It's year round, and so and I'm a political junkie myself, so I'm loving it. No, and that's definitely something we want to impress upon people uh, with the Urban League is that you know voting is an ongoing thing throughout the course of the year. That engagement, but also the accountability piece, which I think people are familiarizing themselves with because they are upset. I've seen more people speaking out at city council meeting, uh, commissioner's court, uh, calling their city council people. And so this is all a part of their process. I know for some people, they think it's as simple as, you know, just voting and then trusting them to do the right thing, but that's not always the reality. Um, and so you do have to make sure that you are vigilant and paying attention, uh, at least at a, you know, a high level in terms of what's going on. Um, 
one of the things that's a huge concern here in Harris County, and the reason I wanted James to touch on Kentucky specifically, is because we don't know, because there is so much uncertainty around the coronavirus, the best way to safely hold elections. And there's been a lawsuit going back and forth about uh, whether or not people could get mail-in ballots. And the last I saw, they were able to do so, but they have to basically distinguish that there's some type of disability. Now that could be, you know, that you are, you know, susceptible to catching the coronavirus. They're not gonna investigate it, I guess is what they're saying. Yeah. Yes, um, the Texas Tribune, they wrote a, a very good article on that. The Texas Supreme Court had weighed in, and Marina, please, as a legal expert in the room, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the Supreme Court said that the coronavirus or your ability to potentially catch it while voting is not um, a disability as defined by that law that allows you in the state of Texas to um, request and receive a mail-in ballot based on a disability. So getting the coronavirus is not a disability in order to receive a mail-in ballot in the state of Texas. That's what the Supreme Court said uh, two, two or three weeks ago. Uh, and that's what I saw. And so right now, we're monitoring it from a voter protection standpoint to make sure that uh, whatever plan is rolled out, that it's going to best serve uh, the Black community and the overall community. But, you know, just when it comes to voter disenfranchisement um, and voter suppression, our communities are typically targeted uh, and definitely here in the state of Texas. So something we'll be monitoring, um, also trying to make sure that more poll workers. So for people listening, if you are interested in being a poll worker, I've actually had couple people reach out to me we need more poll workers um, and that's important because those are people that are on site making sure that things are being done decent and order but we've also seen instances of voter intimidation uh, in some cases by poll workers that may not necessarily look like us or have our interests uh, at heart and so keep that in mind uh, but with the coronavirus we've recently seen a huge spike in cases here in the state of Texas, here in Houston specifically. I think they're now saying we potentially could become one of the worst uh, cities or hotspots in North America, which is just crazy to me. Um, but, you know, for both of you guys, what are your thoughts? I mean, we saw the article, was it from Governor Abbott maybe like a week ago, uh, blaming millennials, I think it was like the 20-something age demographic in a certain counties uh, that was accounting for the majority of the cases. And he named like five or six counties specifically. Harris County was not one of them. Uh, but nonetheless, calling out millennials. Um, but you know, here in Houston, we just actually had a, a mask order that went into effect today that's gonna be instituted against businesses because they can't do it against an individual. Um, that's what one of my attorney friends told me. So Marina, again, if I'm saying something wrong, uh, but it can only be instituted against businesses and not individuals. So in regards to that, um, when Judge Hildago tried to institute a policy that was going to be punishable by fine, 
Um, I believe it was, it was just going to be by fine originally back maybe in March or April when we were kind of just going under the stay at home advisory. There was something that came out that said that it's mandatory to have a mask when you go out. If you don't have one, you'll be fine. What Governor Abbott said is that he is superseding what any local government says and nobody can be fined if they do not have a mask. So since he has said that an individual person cannot be fined, so what you're saying is true. An individual person cannot be fined based on what Governor Abbott has put in place, but they can say, you know, businesses must require a business is not an individual. Right. And I think that was the loophole because the businesses certify with the city of Houston. And because of that, the city of Houston can hold them accountable versus an individual. And so I think that's what they started today. Cause I know here in my neighborhood in third ward, I've seen people out like nothing happened and nobody's wearing masks. It's, and it's not like I want to go out. I'm not gonna act like I don't want to go out. But at the same time, the coronavirus is still here. Like it's real. Um, I know people personally, fraternity brothers that have died from it. Um, I had an extended family member who caught it. He recovered, thank God. But, you know, it's definitely real. So, I mean, how are you guys, I guess, handling it or, you know, with work and whatnot? I'm, I'm pretty much entirely remote. Uh, well, I'll speak to two points. The first being as it relates to voting. Um, so I was one of the people who was like in line at TSU, well, Texas Southern University, um, during the initial vote. Um, and that was right when um, kind of COVID had become this big thing where people were becoming more aware about it. And we're stuck in line, you know, there's no space in between anybody. At that point, the six feet distance was not being heavily promoted how it is now. So I can't imagine that anybody would want to be in that same situation. Um, so I hope that people will go early vote. Early voting does begin on the 29th, which is next Monday. Um, and so hopefully we'll see a bigger turnout for early voting because what was said is that at Texas Southern University during early voting, there was no line at all. People didn't show up. People just showed up on voting night. Um, and so hopefully um, since that incident, um, because there was so much news coverage, uh, there was articles about it nationally, not just in Houston, um, but people will become more knowledgeable about the ability to early vote. Uh, I know a lot of people said they didn't know that you could early vote. So hopefully people will get out um, more doing early voting to decrease the large turnout on, you know, voting day. Um, in regards to working, um, you know, I'm, we're back at work five days a week. They told us we weren't coming back soon enough. So we're back in the office. Um, and the most I can do really is just keep my office door closed so that people don't feel as free to come in and just talk. But as far as, you know, just being around people on a, on a daily basis, they told us we weren't coming back quick enough. And so we're back to five days a week in the office. And even when we were telecommuting, I was only allowed to telecommute two days per week. The rest of the time we needed to be in the office. Wow. That, wow. <laughs> I'm gonna send you some sanitizer through the mail or something. Um, I, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I've, um, I've been a hundred percent remote since March 16th. Uh, that's when we got our official don't come back. See when we see, uh, messaging, 
Um, but I, I think it's um, as it relates to, to voting and, and this virus, there are still ways that um, the, the counties and cities that we live can um, promote safe and healthy practices while voting. Um, so I live in Fort Bend County. And one of the things that they are um, researching right now through surveys, town halls, conversations is um, one, is it appropriate to, appropriate to mandate some type of mask order? Um, currently they're, they're following, you know, Governor Abbott's um, ma mandate or to not mandate essentially uh, wearing a mask. But I think it's critical that um, we as individuals um, look out for ourselves. Uh, what, what I've seen and, and what I've heard from a state level and because of what I've heard from a state level at the local level, it is, you know, we are trusting individuals to make the best decisions for, for themselves. So my thing is, let's do that. And that re requires wearing a mask. That requires voting early. Um, uh, and most locations in Fort Bend County where I've early voted, specifically, there has been no line. And I couldn't imagine, um, you know, the, the site that we did see at TSU, I couldn't imagine what that might, must have felt like even back then when we didn't know a lot of, um, of what the coronavirus was. But now that we do, you know, there's still going to be people who um, aren't going aren't gonna to adhere to what we're talking about, what Mayor Turner has uh, promoted. And that's, that's unfortunate. So the best that we can do is within our spheres of influence is make sure people understand Washing your hands is still best practice. Wearing a mask is still best practice. And voting is best practice. If you are tired of hearing um, from our leaders right now and say the wrong thing in your opinion, you have the power to change that, either by running yourself next election cycle or voting for the people who have, have taken up that mantle to be in the arena and run. Your, your, your greatest asset is your voice at the ballot box. And it's, to some extent, nothing should stop that. But while we're living in this new normal of COVID-19, living with it, we have to understand that voting is still necessary, but so is being safe. And not just voting, but educated voting. Absolutely. Actually knowing who those people are and not just choosing you know, the ethnic name or the name that sounds like a certain gender. I read an article that said um, the initial voting that took place in March, there were more women elected and it was shown that um, they had a big women turnout. And so people are just voting for, okay, this is sound like a woman and does this sound ethnic? And so um, people who I thought, you know, were going to have great turnout rates such as Adia Jones, who was running for DA, um, or people who was running for um, Precinct 7, um, Area 1, or JP Court. Like, I thought that uh, Judge Jeremy Wright would be elected for another term, and they were not. And so it, it goes back to just being educated on who you're voting for and not just looking for names that are appealing. That sounds like such a great civic engagement chair. Oh, man, you're going to be awesome. Because um, that you're absolutely 100% correct. And the only thing I'll add to that, because it was said perfectly, is the information is there. It, it, is, it is not difficult at all. Um, Google is your friend. I'm sure you've heard a number of people say that. If you are not sure who represents me, you can very literally type in who represents me in Google. And it will send you to a website where you put in either your address or your, or your zip code. And it shows you the list of everybody running. 
or excuse me, everybody who represents you. From there, you can copy paste that name, put it in Google again, and it'll show you who they're up against and when the election cycle is coming. So yes, yes, and yes. An educated voter is what we need more of. No, and for those listeners that know somebody who does not have internet access, uh, they can still get the printed League of Women Voters Guide. Uh, it's a nonpartisan resource. You will have to do some reading, uh, but I think we have to get in the practice of being more educated and taking that responsibility on because even when I ran for office, I had people tell me they voted for me because my name was similar to somebody else that had been elected that was like a governor. So I was like, I don't know who you're talking about. Um, and I appreciated the vote. However, uh, you would like them to vote based on your policies and not just some random uh, attribution. So definitely want to encourage people to do that. And where we're able to, the Urban League definitely partners to educate people. And we're actually working on some things as it relates to county and city, city uh, to educate the community more on those specific roles, not necessarily people, because we don't push uh, candidates. We do want to make sure people understand those different offices. Marina, you were about to say something? No. Oh, okay. I thought you were uh, trying to unmute yourself. Oh, um, no. And so the last, the last thing I did want to touch on, because we're coming up on time, is the census and why for each of you is it important for people to complete that? Um, so the census, so needed. Um, so actually last week I was actually took the time just to kind of reach out to my following base on Instagram to try to get feedback as to why people were not completing the census. So I just asked a question, if you have not completed the census, what is your reasoning? Um, people were a little shy about it. Uh, at first, um, and then I got some personal messages just saying that um, the biggest thing was that people didn't know what the census was for. Um, they had always been told that the census just counts how many people um, are in the country and it was a way to get your personal information. So I'm like, okay, so it seems like people are not completing the census based on this information. So then I just started posting facts about what the census does, how the census actually protect your personal information and that's not submitted to the federal government in a way that can be viewed and um, can individualize you. And so I actually got feedback from people then sending me the screenshots after they had completed the census because there was simply misinformation out there and they didn't have the proper information. And so I did another post that kind of related back to um, what James said is that like, it's okay not to know but be aware that we literally have knowledge at our fingertips. Most of the people who were responding, we were on social media, so they had access to the internet. Um, knowledge is literally at our fingertips. And so we have to take the time to research the things that we don't know to make sure that we're making adequate judgments and holding opinions um, that truly represent what we want to see. So if we're saying that I want the, um, money that's supposed to be going to police department to re reappropriate it to education and reappropriate into affordable housing um, and into my community. Let's look at what the census does because that money goes to exactly towards those things. And I'm not saying that, you know, the other point is irrelevant as far as reappropriating police funds, but let's also look at what the census funds will do. We need all the money, you know, possible to go towards those sorts of issues. And for, for me, the, the importance of the, of the, the census is really its legacy. 
Uh, this only happens once every 10 years. And if you think about it, think for, to the, those listening, think about where you were 10 years ago, how much you've achieved, how much you've, you've grown, how much you've changed, things good or bad that have happened to you. Um, the, the census in, in a similar respect has that same type of uh, weight in, in, our, in our life as a society. If you're thinking about, um, I've had to fix my tire uh, every so often because uh, you know, the roads are, are a hot mess or um, you know, I, I can't, you know, I like this bus route, but I have to walk X amount of miles to get to it. Um, that, that type of funding around transportation, roads, infrastructure, um, uh, the schools, uh, everything with our public education. Uh, if you think about how uh, much dialogue is going around HISD, the census has everything to do with that based on the number of people who are in your house and your neighbor's house. The government will not, the government makes its decisions based on numbers. When you're thinking about uh, redistricting or how funds uh, get allocated when when people weren't too concerned with dismantling uh, the Affordable uh, Care Act and, excuse me, Medicaid expansion, they were looking at uh, how to allocate funds. They went back to the census. They went back to the numbers. How many uh, African Americans live in this particular zone as of 2010? Well, if this number is is lower than what they expected, they're going to move that money to where the air quotes greater need is. Don't give them that power. Don't let the decision uh, rest in their hands. Let it rest in yours by filling out the census. Um, I, I filled mine out um, on census day. Um, I, I did a, a little video um, on my uh, public uh, Facebook page um, that just talked about that. And much like uh, Marina had mentioned, I think that's a great idea posing the question uh, to, your, to your network. Um, what, what I chose to do is just put the information out there. And that started kind of organic conversations in my mentions as well. Where, where can I go get it? How does this, I thought people knock on my door. Uh, I was waiting for somebody to knock on my door so I can fill out the census. Okay, that's, that's a fair point. Now you can do it online. And so for, for those who you know, may not have access, because Ray, that's a great point. Um, there, there are options to, to do that. You can request a mail um, census uh, uh, report so you can fill it out there and then mail it back. So there are options. It's not too late. Census day was in April, but you can continue to fill it out. And I just encourage everybody to do that because we won't have another opportunity to shape our world for another 10 years. No, and I think you guys all made extremely excellent points. The only thing I add is go to my2020census.gov and complete it if you have not, uh, but also encourage you to text as many people as possible, uh, and even those who do not have access to internet, et cetera, make yourselves available so they can complete it as well, uh, because there's nothing else that you can do and it takes less than 10 minutes that will have hundreds of billions of dollars of impact in our communities over the course of the next 10 years. I want to thank you both for joining us today uh, and giving us your uh, expertise as it relates to your own community experiences, as well as your corporate experiences. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in each and every week to Empower. To learn more about how the Houston Area Urban League is impacting the community and ways you can get involved, visit us online at haul.org. Follow us on Twitter at HOU Urban League 
And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcasting platform you enjoy. Thanks for listening to Empower, presented by the Houston Area Urban League.